Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 227, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, the share of Americans who believe colleges and universities have a positive impact on the country has dropped. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, most of us would agree it's important to teach financial literacy to students. But why don't we? And how can we start? Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am exhausted. I bet. <laughs> School's been just kind of rocking and rolling for you for a few weeks, and, uh, yes. and you've got this extra hat that you now wear as the chief academic officer for your school district. Uh, so you're hanging in there, I guess? You're just tired. I am hanging in there. I'm just tired today, but I think it's just because, you know, brain exhaustion. I've had my um, brain, my wheels turning on a lot of different things. I've um, got my hand in too many pots today. <laughs> does Does your office have a place that you can go outside and like walk? Is that a thing? Well, actually, it, it really does because our central office building is a historical building. Oh, yeah. um, it used to be a high school and it is sitting right on the same property as a uh, local walking trail and city park. But Addressing hills aren't exactly right. He's got to bring tennis <laughs> shoes. Tire. Well, yeah, but I, I don't really have time to do that. And yeah. and in the evening, um, you know, I'm thinking about getting down the road and getting home. So I, I just feel like nothing's okay. better for mental health than like just getting out and going for a walk with, by trees. That's perfect. Well, I will tell you, I am back on my Peloton. I um, completed a class yesterday, and it did just allow me to release a lot. So I board meet tonight. I won't get home. Same time, I'll be home late, but I still have a class scheduled, and it will help me release a lot of this tension. I don't know if our listeners um, who aren't from where we're from have ever connected the dots. We might have mentioned it once on the show, but can we talk about where your school district is and how people from all Absolutely. over the country might know what, what the city? So I serve in the Laurel School District, which is in Laurel, Mississippi, a quaint little town about 30 minutes from Hattiesburg. And what's so awesome about the city of Laurel is um, this is where the show Hometown is hosted um, for the HGTV network. Right. And so you, you so probably the see these homes that are like rebuilt uh, and... Absolutely. Um, there's actually one directly across the street from the central office that was completed last year. But what I see more than anything is when I'm running um, errands between schools or if I'm going to get my lunch, I might run um, in, at an intersection into the hometown limousine that drives the potential guest around to identify a home Neat. that they can uh, use for the show. And it's so cool because they have two or three of them and you always know who's in there and what they're doing. They only drive about 15 miles per hour, no matter what street they're on. Yeah. Um, so you know that they're perusing and looking at houses. <laughs> Do you see any increased tourism, like people who are coming to the town oh. because of the show? 
Definitely. And I want to say there was actually some information reported about that recently. Um, but yes, and I'll give you an example. I actually was in Jackson, Mississippi, um, back in March for a job fair at Jackson State University. And, um, so there were, there were, uh, School districts from all over the country, believe it or not, there um, trying to reach those candidates. And there was one woman who was here from um, Northern California and she saw our school district and she came over at the end of the fair and she said, well, I'm actually not flying home today. She said, we are going to Laurel. She told me that she there refused to come all this way and not see the city of Laurel and not go to the mercantile store that they own. And she was just so excited and told us about all these little nuggets um, about the city of Laurel. And so that just confirmed for me that... You know, we're on the map. Remember the show, of course, it's the same producers as Hometown, um, the one that was in Waco, Texas with Chip and Joanna Gaines. That was the, mm-hmm. the Fixer Upper, I guess, was the name of the show. And Correct. Um, what was neat about what they did for the city of Waco was I only knew Waco from the 90s, David Koresh, Waco. Yeah, not so good news. Right. And then they come in and they completely change my image of Waco, Texas, right? Like, and that's mm-hmm. cool. It's cool to see the same thing happening in Laurel. Not that we had this like horrible event that happened in Laurel, but it's just neat to see the impact that a show can have on a city. All right. Now today I've got a topic that I don't know. I don't know where like K through 12 educators are going to fall on this one, but it, it starts from a survey and I kind of want your two cents on it. And it has to do with how, Americans in the survey um, feel about colleges and universities. And so here's, here's the info. It says the share of Americans who believe colleges and universities have a positive impact on the country has dropped by 14 percentage points since 2020. Now they're not saying that they have a negative. Everyone has a negative. It's just saying it's dropped some, you know, so, and I'll, I'll go more into the study, but does that surprise you to hear that maybe Americans are turning slightly sour on the idea that everyone needs to get a higher education? That does surprise me. And I wonder if it has anything to do with the pandemic and how universities have had to change how they reach out to students, how they provide education. I, I think that might. And in fact, um, so this is according to a study um, and it's an annual survey conducted by New America, which is a nonpartisan think tank. And they um, surveyed about 1500 adults in mm-hmm. the spring of 2022. So this is like right when we were all starting to feel the effects of gas prices and inflation. And, mm-hmm. and this, the author actually pointed this out. Sophie Nguyen uh, says that the decline is driven by economic challenges. So they didn't so much point to the pandemic. Well, that has our- to include the great resignation mm-hmm. um, and people finding different professions, completely changing their lives. And I mean, you really have to stop and think. I mean, do you need a college degree to get a good job? Absolutely. But it's still contradictory to me that that many people are losing, losing faith. I guess for, for me, and I don't want to like, you know, I'm, I've got one son who's gone through or going through trade school and the other is going to go off to a four-year university in a year. And I know you've got multiple kids who have gone through universities. But for me, it's almost like if you're going to invest, what, a house, essentially the price of a house in your education, you you want to know that you're going to get some sort of return on it. Correct. And, and I think that cost, you know, when my parents were, younger and they would say, I paid my way through college. Like that, that was noble, but at the same time, college was a lot less expensive than it is today. I don't think a waiter could pay their way through college today. A lot of other things are higher too. Rent is higher. Property is higher. Gas is higher. I mean, I remember when gas was 80 cents a gallon. (laughs) Right. 
the idea of a, a person who makes, let's just say $15 an hour, that's not even the minimum wage, but the idea of somebody who's making $15 an hour, can they pay their way through college? Like, can they go and have that job and go to class? I mean, is that even enough money? I guess with financial aid, it's doable. It is if you live at home. Yeah. <laughs> and even then, um, you'll still have to contribute. I mean, I think about um, my baby right now. He's not working, but when football season is over, he's already decided that he's got to get a job um, because he, you know, there are things that he wants, places he wants to go, and he doesn't want to, um, you know, constantly ask me for things. But we are, even though he's on scholarship, we still have to give him money. We still have to take care of his gas tank. Still have to make sure he has access to all the things that he he needs. And so imagine someone that is living on their own that maybe even decided to go off to college later in life and trying to manage, you know, daily um, bills and needs and put themselves through college. It's definitely a strain. I feel like the other thing that's um, could take a toll just on the overall view of college is we see kids who maybe teach themselves how to write code, get hired by the local software company or a software company and do really well. Or we see somebody who um, maybe learns how to work on HVAC or be a plumber. And there are, of course, trade schools and stuff for that, but they can make a really good living and not the traditional four-year liberal arts type degree. And so I I think we start to wonder like, all right, is it worth dropping 150,000 on that? And well, that's, you know, I guess I could, we could just literally talk about the teaching profession. That is one reason why mm-hmm. the numbers of candidates has declined drastically over the last few years. And it started before the pandemic. The teachers are also seeing that they can make a lot more money doing some other things. But for me, it can't always just be about the amount of money. What I do every day is so fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Seeing my students as adults um, you know, who have gone off to college, who are married with children or whatever the case may be. That is so gratifying to me to know that I made a difference um, in their lives. So, you know, it's just it's two, twofold. All right. So there's some more numbers that kind of come out of the study. It's going to be a little bit, uh, I don't say controversial, but a little bit blue and red. Um, it, says, come on. it says in line with previous years, the survey finds that Democrats and Republicans disagree about multiple aspects of higher education, while 73% of Democrats believe colleges and universities have a positive impact on the country. Only 37% of Republicans feel that way. I found that hard to believe. Like I know a lot of Republicans living here in the South. I don't, I can't say that there's like this overwhelming feeling from them that you shouldn't go to college, but I don't know. No, I don't, I don't gather that either, to be honest. All right. So it goes on to say Americans also remain divided on who should pay for higher education. Most Democrats, 77 percent, say that the government should fund higher education because it's good for society, while the majority of Republicans, 63 percent, say students should pay for post high school education because it will they will benefit from it. Um, That's a tough one. And you'd have to be ready for a debate, especially with the loan forgiveness um, situation being, you know, um, a, a great topic right now. I wish there was a way that we could provide much more affordable um, post high school instruction for students. Um, the the whole idea of saying that you know you should pay for your own education because you will benefit from it that to me is we could probably even do a deeper dive on because go let's go back <laughs> to teachers right like we all want our teachers to be the best that they can possibly be and have the best education I, I think everyone would agree with that mm-hmm. but to ask a teacher to go take out a loan to turn around and be paid forty thousand dollars their first year or thirty five thousand depending on where you are that's a big ask and I feel like maybe yes. as a society we should be helping those 
getting particular degrees um, instead of just saying you'll benefit from it once you get out on the other side. Mm -hmm. I agree. There's a, there's a deep discussion that could happen. We could probably dedicate an entire show to that. Only about half of the respondents think Americans can get an affordable, high quality education after high school. And I'm going to be, I don't know, maybe you and I don't agree on this, but I'm going to be in the category that I, I feel like it's hard to get an affordable, high quality education for, it is for hard. many Americans. It is hard. I will not disagree with that. But that's the reason why that planning should start very early. Yeah, I know. But so even so, like you, you go and you save like your whole child's mm -hmm. life, right? And you manage to scrape together. I mean, if you're saving... $200 a month. It's not enough. Like and that, it might be one reason why so many people are trying to make sure our high school students know, hey, four-year college is not for everyone. Please consider a vocational or a trade school and please consider going to a community college first. It doesn't make you uncool. It doesn't make you less smart or, you know, to have less potential. It's just affordable. Yeah. I mean, for me, and it might just be the area that we live in, I watch a lot of people do really well going through voc vocational schools or a trade school yes. and come out on the other side uh, yep. and they do it in less time. It costs less money and they actually have great salaries on the other side. So, and they do. And you know, then they, sometimes they decide to go to college um, just because it allows them to get in supervisory roles or in teaching roles within that uh, technical skill. We'll stop there. Are you ready for today's bright idea? Yes. Bring it on. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is here to tell us why it's critical to begin educating our students about financial literacy when they're young. Jessica Pelletier is the executive director of Fit Money. It's a philanthropic nonprofit who provides free, unbiased financial literacy programs to help K-12 students develop life skills for a financially fit future. Jessica, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you, Nick. I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, we're excited to have you. And the reason I say this is because... When you listen to our show, if you're a regular listener, we do a pop quiz in all of our episodes with our guests kind of towards the end. And, and one of those questions that we ask, you're actually going to get a heads up on it, is what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? And more common than not, the answer is financial literacy. So I've been hearing that for years. And I mean, I heard that when I was in school, we need to teach financial liter literacy, but you don't necessarily see it mandated everywhere and you don't necessarily see a huge effort um, for it to happen, even though I think we all agree that it needs to happen. So my first question to you is, why is that? Well, Nick, you're, you're speaking our language for sure. And I have to say, as the uh, head of a nonprofit that certainly does advocate for, for this addition, inclusion into our education uh, systems, there's not anyone out there who disagrees with us. So that part of my job is super easy because we get lots of parents and even educators and certainly students themselves saying, yep, absolutely. I wish I had that when I was in school or how do we make that happen? Um, so you're right. I think the biggest challenge are because there are a lot of other great things out there that also need to be taught. And as we all know, you know, teachers aren't sitting around with open hours in their day. So I think the word mandate is always, uh, you know, one that people struggle with or new requirements or, you know, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? Um, so that's a, a challenge that, that we hope to address. But I will say, and I don't think that this is um, something that a lot of educators will disagree with. I think they themselves don't feel that comfortable teaching personal finance because mm. 
This has not been in the school systems for a very long time. I mean, we're talking, I think, home economics maybe taught you how to write a check and balance a checkbook, but kind of the basics just have not been in the mainstream education uh, system. So our teachers today did not get this in their studies. So I think they're a little weary to kind of be the expert standing at the front of the classroom uh, espousing, you know, good financial health. Right. And I guess that's probably where uh, a group like you all would come in because you probably just build a curriculum for them already where you kind of, I don't want to say just plug and play, but it, it helps at least point them in the right direction. Exactly. So it was really important to us if we were going to appeal to educators that we designed a curriculum that was by educators. So our academic directors were former classroom instructors. They know all about pacing, implementation plans. They, you know, one taught in the Bronx, one has taught in Providence, you know, very culturally different cities because, you know, financial behaviors can be very different uh, and and that's okay. Uh, So we really wanted to incorporate you know, all the different uh, breaks and pacing guides and whatnot that come from traditional curricula, but also really allow for a teacher to insert their own experiences or their own, you know, uh, pacing, timing, etc. It was, is important to be plug and play. Uh, You're right, that is kind of a, a buzzword, but very important. Because as we know, especially after two years of of COVID and uh, remote learning, you know, teachers don't have time to be up at two in the morning trying to on YouTube find videos that work in their classrooms. So we've really done that for them. We've made it easy. Well, you just said something that intrigued me. And that was that, I guess, if I heard you right, you're basically saying that how you would teach kids might vary from geographic location to geographic location when it comes to financial literacy. And if I'm hearing you right, that kind of surprises me. I figured a lot of the tips would be the same. So I think the basic foundational principles in needs and wants um, are are the same. Uh, we all kind of in our own way know what our needs are, what our wants are. Those might be different per family unit or per individual. Mm-hmm. Responsible borrowing is certainly one that, you know, should hit home with everyone. When you borrow something, whether it's a mortgage or, you know, credit card uh, bill or someone's bicycle or a sweater, you return it on time and you return it in the, in the same condition. So those I think are standard, but when we talk about earning, when we talk about student loans, when we talk about debt, you know, that is something that really does vary. You know, there are families out there that are terrified of debt. They absolutely will not open a credit card. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have to understand that that is just something that, has been passed down through generations. And, you know, for us, you know, that is somewhat of a deterrent to future, you know, uh, loaning or, or even renting an apartment, because if you have zero credit reputation, uh, it can make it a real challenge to kind of enter the, the credit market. But mm-hmm. so you really have to understand kind of what's going on at home in addition to what's going on in your classroom. It's not, you know, algebra probably doesn't require a lot of parental involvement, uh, but I think involving the community, involving your caregivers, for us, we did that in a way, they're called community connection guides. 
And these are simply, you know, exercises that the students can take home and really involve their caregivers, their guardians. Uh, and because it is, it's, it's very holistic. Recapping where we are right now. So you say, for the most part, we all agree that financial literacy should happen in the classroom, but it's not necessarily either enough time or teachers are afraid to actually build the curriculum. So let's just say that you guys have the curriculum, you set it out there for them. Are you seeing adoption in only the states where it's mandated? A little bit of both. Uh, So this year was actually one of the biggest for movement in this kind of advocacy effort. Uh, I think recently we had about six new states that just signed laws that require some form of credit. You know, I think Florida and Michigan require a half credit to graduate. Uh, South Carolina, Georgia, a little bit different. New Hampshire did what I think is really interesting. Uh, They are saying an adequate education includes financial literacy among a bunch of other items. So that that leaves a lot more um, leeway, I think, for educators and school systems. Uh, So we are definitely seeing an uptick on the requirement side. But I will say there are a lot of educators out there, and I think even more so in this past two years, that have that communication with parents, maybe more so than they ever before, whether whether they like it or not. Mm -hmm. And and families are asking for this and students are asking for this. Um, And so they're really searching out ways to be responsive to that. So we do have educators and, and in a way, they're almost our volunteers. You know, if we were a bricks and mortar nonprofit that had, you know, you can go paint a mural or build a house, you have this great, you know, plethora of volunteers. But for us, our educators who bring this to their classroom, um, because we know they're, you know, they're probably not getting paid to do it if they're in many, many of those states that don't require it. Um, they're the they're the heroes for us uh, because they're reaching out and bringing what they know their students and their families need. I'm, I'm a parent and I have a wide range of kids. I have a 22 year old, a 17 year old. I have a, a seven year old. Um, and I, I remember at different stages in my older children's lives that I would try to have these conversations about, you know, credit card debt. And I, I couldn't tell if it was going in one ear and out the other, but I still, I still just <laughs> kind of said it out loud, you know, um, and and I don't know that it made a huge difference, but I guess this leads me to my question is when should we start, I don't say drilling this stuff into their heads, but like when should we start having this discussion is should my seven-year-old like be learning about financial literacy already? Nick, that's my favorite question to be asked. So research shows that financial behaviors and habits are formed pretty much by age seven. So, and I'm sure as a parent, you see this. I have an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old and they already understand the value of the dollar. And they know how, in their case, how hard it is to earn that. You know, in some cases they get birthday money or gift cards, but in other cases they have to do chores or do, you know, certain activities around the house or those all infamous lemonade stands that they, you know, sit in the hundred degree heat earning that dollar. So we talk about that. And that is so important to start those conversations early. At the end of the day, financial literacy is a behavioral science. This is not, can you balance a checkbook and get it to equal what your bank says it does? It's, can you make decisions that in many cases are difficult to make based on kind of that good foundational behavior? So we all have wants. I mean, we all want the new phone. We all want the video game. In many cases, you know, kids, they're bombarded with advertisements, whether from their 
YouTube or, or television. They know all of the things that are out there and their wants for a lot of kids are taken care of, you know, by their parents. So it's hard not to say, well, how come I can't have all of these things? So as a parent, it is really important for us to start those behavioral conversations early. I'm not saying that you should necessarily take out your mortgage statement and, and explain what, you know, the property tax and what all the, you know, the intricacies are. But I also don't think that's a bad thing. I do think it's really important for children to understand the decisions that parents or caregivers have to make, because eventually those are the decisions that are going to be in front of them. And we also have ways to implement this into the classroom in a very fun, friendly I think, engaging way. And so that you really get the multifaceted approach from the educator as well as the caregiver. And and perhaps they go to after school or, or YMCAs. And, and so we have ways that they can get in on this uh, education as well. All right. So let's talk about what this looks like with Fit Money. Um, again, you guys are a nonprofit and uh, you, I guess, reach out to schools and say, hey, we have this curriculum. Like, how does that whole exchange happen? So we are philanthropically funded, and that's really important to us. Uh, there are phenomenal organizations out there that are doing this same work. Uh, some of them are like us in that they believe that uh, their curriculum should be free uh, because, again, in many instances, as we said, this uh, is not mandated. So to ask a teacher or a school district to pay for it is is, is a tall order. Uh, but what we do slightly different is we do believe that this really should be unbiased education. And by that, we mean we really don't want financial institutions, logos, credit card applications, selling data, uh, because yeah. I think it's really important, especially if you are talking to the real young, very impressionable audiences. You know, cryptocurrency is obviously a very exciting opportunity for a lot of you know young teens out there. So you don't necessarily want all of the logos of all of the different ways that they can you know, get into this market because mm -hmm. it, it just clouds that learning. Um, and so we, we take philanthropic dollars uh, instead of what we call kind of marketing dollars. Uh, that being said, there are some phenomenal financial institutions uh, and trading applications out there who believe just as passionately as we do in financial education. And so they will... Um, support us philanthropically. So we take those dollars, we work on that curriculum, we're constantly refining it. Like I just said, cryptocurrency is fairly new. So we, you know, are, are adding modules on that. Um, and then also really working on that outreach. Um, you can have the best tools out there, but we are not the field of dreams. If you build it, they will not just automatically come. So you do have to spend a lot of time reaching out to teachers, finding where they are, going to those uh, conferences. And let's face it, now a lot of people are online. So we do um, kind of digital outreach, whether it's, um, you know, great old, good old fashioned Google, you know, ads or, or whatnot to really try to let educators and caregivers know of these free resources for them. I mean, do you, do you typically see the adoption, though, happen at the teacher level or the school level, the district level? Right now, I'd really say it's at the teacher level. 
Um, again, I think it'll be interesting since we do have so many more states joining uh, in the next couple of years. As you know, legislation doesn't pass and then tomorrow it's mandated. Right. So it's usually <laughs> the you know, 23, 24 uh, high school seniors who will have this requirement. So I do see think we're gonna we're gonna see some really motivated, great educators out there who are saying, well, let's get ahead of this and let's go, you know, find one or two resources and try them on for size. And we're hopefully that we can be one of those one of those choices for sure. Okay. And yeah, so I asked that question because if I'm a teacher listening right now and I go, All right, yeah, I teach a class where we could easily discuss financial literacy. I guess, do they just go to fitmoney.org and, and kind of just start downloading stuff? Like, how does that work? Yep, it's completely open source. And so, again, that's really important to us. This, this is completely free for educators or, or really anyone. Uh, you could be a camp counselor who's, you know, got a, tr- a troop of scouts that are getting their financial literacy badge. So uh, we, we do not uh, discriminate on whomever you are as long as you want to teach this to a group of students of anywhere between kind of starting in kindergarten all the way up to 12th. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Fitmoney.org. Uh, we hope it's an easy to, to access website. There is a educator section. There is a caregiver section. Uh, there's even one for students directly because like I said, we're seeing that kind of the, the, the older teen knows that they need this. And, you know, most kids these days, they actually start working at 14, 15, whether it's at the grocery store down the street. So they're actually getting a pay stub or they're a gig worker doing landscaping. So they're, you know, getting cash in some instances. And they really want to understand, well, what should I do with all this money? What does, what are all these terms on my paycheck? I've had students say, who is this FICA person? And why am I paying, why, why am I paying her? I mean, there, so, there is so much to talk about. There really is. I mean, it is. In that world. Um, let me ask you this. So you guys have apparently a financially fit online certificate. Is that for mm-hmm. like a student can just hop on there? Or is that for a teacher to get the certificate? What's the story behind that? So it's definitely an option for students if they are motivated to do that. We would love to have individual students come one, come all. But this is also a great tool for teachers who want to just start to do this work. Uh, We all know that sometimes getting a full semester class approved is very difficult. So if you are a history or social studies or general studies, perhaps you have a, you know, a, a, a library class, uh, you can do the certificate and assign it. It really works at the student's own pace, at the teacher's own pace. Short uh, video modules. We all learned during COVID that 45-minute webinars passively don't do the trick. You know, people have zoned off very quickly thereafter. Mm-hmm. So short videos, assessment test, and the certificate we have for high school and then also for juniors, third through fifth grade, which is really fun. Yeah. I mean, Jessica, I got to say thank you because I was, as you were talking to me about, you know, working with the younger um, children, I was thinking about last night when my seven-year-old walked into my bedroom and was like, I want a cell phone and -and so-and-so has a cell phone. (laughs) And I was tired and I was like, get out of here. I was like, you got an iPad, go away. But like, that would have been a great learning opportunity to, you know, talk about the cost of a cell phone and, you know, why. And and there's other reasons too, of course, in the world of cellular phones and children. But, um, you know, so I appreciate that. I'm going to probably go back and and revisit that conversation with her when I see her. Absolutely. One of my board members was on a panel a couple weeks ago and she said it so clearly that, We just need to get talking about money kind of in the water. I still think this is such a taboo for so many people. 
Um, you know, similar to, you know, years and years ago, it was, it was really taboo to talk about your health, you know, out in public. You did not go to a, a cocktail party and talk about, you know, a neighbor who had cancer or how can we do this, you know, run to support a family. But now that's, you know, because people realize it, it, it takes a village. I know that's cliche to say. And so we, we really are trying to work hard to get talking about smart behavioral, you know, financial decisions kind of out there. So it's not taboo. So people aren't making the same mistakes that, you know, their neighbor made or uh, who's going off to college and taking out too many student loans or, you know, too many credit cards or um, just, you know, all of the, all of the wants and none of the needs. So it, it is really important to start. Yeah, no, I mean, with my 22 year old, it's just like, I was talking to him the other day and he said, Oh, I subscribe to get major league baseball for $26 a month. And I was like, that's a lot for, you know, just a subscription service. And we live in this world now where you get bombarded by subscriptions and you forget that you have them and then they're constantly renewing. Right. And next thing you know, you've got four or $500 a month in recurring cost. And um, it's just, there's so many different things you could talk about. And it makes me excited to know that there's, there's uh, groups like you all who are, are at least trying to get this into the classroom and, and I hope some people really, you know, adopt it and, and take it on. Oh, I hope so too. And and for your you know older kids too, if you think about money for them was also really not uh, um, physical. So many kids are growing up with completely digital wallets, right. um, and there there are you know debit cards for kids now that are basically apps on their phone and and you know Venmo and whatnot. And so it's even harder to get into their minds that this is something of value. And, you know, for him, $26 might be the most important thing he's spending. And so his other entertainment costs are, are lower, but, mm -hmm. but again, it's, it's hard to really think about it in, you know, in, in when you're thinking about all the other things that you have to pay for when it's, you've never physically touched money. Uh, and which I think makes a lot of people realize that, oh, this does actually have value. And this was something I had to earn to, to, to get, well, it's such an important topic. Again, the uh, web address is fitmoney.org. Uh, and uh, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show. Are you ready for our uh, pop quiz? I am, Nick. I am ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, I have to say financial literacy, but I also think reading. All right. If you, uh... I think I'm going to know the answer on the second one. It's uh, what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Personal finance. Absolutely. What does every child deserve? Oh, gosh. Um, every child deserves the opportunity to just make their own decisions. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Time. I think they pr would probably wish they had 36 hours in every day and they probably still couldn't get it all done. What's the best gift to give an educator? Easy to use, free curriculum tools that they can maneuver their classroom how they how they wish. Which teacher changed your life? She was a teacher who was my English teacher, but she also happened to be a sports coach. And so I knew that she was burning the midnight oil. She was there at 6 a.m. in the morning and 6 p.m. at night and just showing that dedication uh, for both my academic education, but also my, you know, social and physical education. 
that was uh, Mrs. Middleton, uh, that she was pretty incredible. Yeah. You know, I've always been amazed by those coaches that are still like driving the bus back from the other high school at like <laughs> yeah. midnight and then they just show up the next morning. Like it's no big deal. I know. It's hard. And she did have a family, so I'm not sure when they saw her. (laughs) All right, last question. Which book did you read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners? Oh, gosh. Um, There is a great book called The Four Money Bears. Uh, A a colleague of mine, Matt Gardner, wrote it. Uh, It's about uh, four bears that are learning about all the different things you can do with money. And uh, I definitely recommend for the younger, like your your seven-year-old, check it out. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just looked it up online. The Four Money Bears. I like that. I'm going to check that out. Great recommendation. Again, uh, you're listening to Jessica Pelletier with Fit Money. And the website is fitmoney.org. Thank you so much for coming on Class Dismissed. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Nick. Nice to meet you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.